we're going to do this right off the top? Whenever you want. Oh, I don't care. You tell me. Let's just do it. Okay, great. All right, you ready? Yeah, I'm ready. Do you want to read it through once? No, I want to be spontaneous and authentic. (laughs) (laughs) And maybe a little likable. Just a touch? Touch a touch. I, I want to get want, carried away. I wouldn't want, a, I wouldn't want too much likability. Enough let's is not, enough with the likability <laughs> stuff. Okay. Are we ready? Okay. Hi, I'm Max Linsky. The last time you heard from me and this podcast was November 7th, 2016, the day before the U.S. presidential election. I was talking to Hillary Clinton about how she felt in such a historic moment Here's the end of that conversation, uh, which I have not been able to listen to until right now. Hillary, thank you. Thanks. Good luck in the last couple of days. Thanks, Max. Good luck on Tuesday. Let's keep talking. We'll keep talking. Okay. All right. (laughs) See you on the other side. Well, it's the other side. Ten months later, things didn't go uh, quite the way we hoped. With her is back for a special two-part episode. I went up to Hillary's house in Chappaqua, and she and I spent a few hours processing everything that's happened. Second part of our conversation will be out tomorrow, but here's part one. All right. Is there anything um, that you'd really like to talk about? You know, I've missed you. And I thought that uh, now the election's over, my mourning period is over, I've walked in the woods a lot, I've prayed, I've done alternate nostril breathing, um, I've drunk my fair share of Chardonnay, and I've written a book, Mm. and uh, I really want to tell the story of the book, that's why I called it What Happened, it's about the election. And so, you know, now I'm just kind of loose and easy and I got a lot of time on my hands, frankly. So I thought we could talk about the book that I just wrote. Okay. I, uh, Is that okay with you? I mean, I, that I don't, works for me. I don't want to impinge upon your freedom of expression. I mean, I got somewhere to be in a little bit, but I'll be, I'll be fine. I've got okay. like, I've got a heart out in like 30 minutes. <laughs> okay. Well, I'll talk fast and <laughs> don't interrupt me. Uh, and we'll see how much ground we can cover. Can we start where the book starts? We can start where the book starts. Tell me about uh, November 8th, 2016. Ugh. A day that shall live in infamy in my brain anyway. We had a great day before the election. It was wonderful. Energized crowds, a lot of enthusiasm. When we were in Philadelphia with President and Mrs. Obama, we all felt really confident, positive. Uh, you know, he gave me a big hug and he said, I'm so proud of you. You know, you've got this. Uh, so, We got back to where I live in Westchester County uh, outside of New York, and we got back about 4 o'clock in the morning, and the um, airport tarmac was filled with so many of my friends and supporters, so it was a really positive, uplifting uh, time. And then we got up in a few hours after that, went to vote, and again, there were so many people there who supported me and had kind and wonderful and encouraging and optimistic things to say. I hate election days. I hate them because you've done all you can do and you have to wait and you never truly know what's going to happen. And so after we voted, you know, I, uh, you know, do what I do when I'm feeling a little at loose ends or stressed out. I started cleaning out drawers and closets. That is my 
you know, go-to relaxation. And I love it because there's a beginning, a middle, and an end. And, you know, I did a lot of that after the election, but even on election day, I was kind of like, okay, I got to keep myself busy and occupied. I try not to pay attention to the, you know, reports, the exit polls, because so often they're misleading. You don't have people coming in and like reading you the latest numbers. Oh, they try to, but I say, look, I'm not. I, I don't want to hear it. I'm doing this drawer thing. I, right yeah, now. I, I don't want to hear it because I don't want to. I don't want to get all wound up one way or the other. My husband, by contrast, is like absorbing every single bit of information. And then we uh, went to the hotel in uh, New York uh, City where we were going to be for the night. My family, um, campaign staff. And when we arrived, my grandchildren were there, and so I got to spend time with them. And I, you know, I was feeling apprehensive because elections make me feel that way, but I was feeling good. And uh, until the first returns started coming in after the polls closed, and then it was really very distressful um, because, you know, the first reports out of Florida and North Carolina were not what we had hoped for, and it was hard to understand because I had done so well in the early vote in Florida. I had what lots of analysts said was an insurmountable lead. What happened? What was the air like in the room? Tense and intense, right? Um, it was in a big suite at the Peninsula Hotel. The TVs, of course, were on, and people were coming in and out and watching the election returns. And it was just very tense. You know, I remember many election nights when either my husband was running or somebody I cared about was running or even when I was running in 2000 and 2006 and 2008, when the atmosphere on election night, even if you're pretty confident you're going to win, there's no guarantee in American politics and elections. And so I was just very tight, very uh, concerned. And then later in the evening, had reason to be very discouraged. In between there, you took a nap? I did. You know, I could either sit there and yell at the TV or feel my stomach turning into more and more knots or just go lie down and, and wait until we had real information. And so that's what I did. So you're sitting in this room. You're like, ah, there's nothing I can do. I'm going to go take a nap. Right. You leave this group of people. Uh, leave all these numbers, the sound of the TVs. You go into a bedroom. What was going through your head? I just wanted to lie down and collect myself. I mean, I still thought, okay, well, we're going to pull this off. I'm not, I'm not sure exactly what's happening, and we don't have state totals. And I know from close elections of people that I've campaigned for, you know, it's not over till it's over. Uh, so I just didn't want to get stressed by every announcement, every graphic that went up on the TV screen. And obviously, I wasn't napping for long. I just wanted to, you know, take some time to compose myself because uh, I knew that it would maybe be a long night. So what happened next? Well, what happened next is that, you know, I walked into the main room in the hotel to see a lot of very grim faces, my campaign chairman and manager, other staff members, friends, family members, just with a look of disbelief. And, you know, I still have something of that disbelief because it just didn't add up from what we what we were seeing, what we were testing, early vote totals. It was just hard to it was just hard to take on board. Did it seem like surreal? Did it seem like an out of body thing? Cuz I can tell you, I mean, I was like at the Javits. Hmm. 
That was a beautiful setting, wasn't it? Oh yes. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. No, you know, there's a phrase in, um, I, I think it's Coleridge, where you see something happening, and at first you don't believe it, and then you kind of suspend your disbelief, but you're not yet ready to accept what you're seeing and learning. So I was in that period of moving from disbelief to suspension of disbelief to reality. And uh, you know, I was just gobsmacked. I couldn't believe it. Part of what I was thinking about that night was that you know I'd gotten to know you a little bit. And one of the things that I couldn't stop thinking about was like, here's this election that's going to dictate history. It couldn't be bigger. It couldn't touch more people. There couldn't be more attention, tens and tens of millions of people uh, fixated on their TV screens in that moment. It was so big. Right. And then uh, there's also you, mm-hmm. like actual human being. And I, I just couldn't figure out how it felt to you. Well, I have to say it that I think I was in shock. And when you're in shock, it's like you're padded in cotton and you're not all there in whatever environment you find yourself. And so it was so surreal, unbelievable, uh, that I had to come to grips with it. And looking at the faces of my campaign team, my family, my friends, was so depressing because they were as shocked as I was. I hadn't even prepared a concession speech. I'd been working on my victory speech, which I was looking forward to delivering at the Javits Center. Uh, And once it became clear, you know, around midnight or or shortly after, uh, that the race was going to be called for Trump, I had to think of what I was going to say. I was in no frame of mind to say it that night. You know, I knew Trump was going to go out, and I needed to call him before he did because that's part of the ritual. What is that phone call like? Oh, partly it's impossible to remember because it was so bizarre uh, to call him and congratulate him. Uh, I don't really remember much else of what I said or he said. I say in the book, it was almost an out-of-body experience, and yet it was like calling a neighbor and saying, I'm sorry, I won't make your barbecue. I mean, really, you just had to get through it. And we did, I did. And then I had to begin talking to my speechwriting team about what I was gonna say. And then we had to figure out where I was gonna say it because we had nowhere to have an event in the middle of the night to deliver a speech I never thought I'd have to give. Reading the book, it's like, it just, um, it was hard for me to wrap my head around these almost like mundane things that had to happen. Like you had to find a room, got to make this phone call. But you know, Max, in a way, those were milestones that you could lay out and know that you had to hit them. You know, I had to give a speech. I had to make that call. Uh, I had to thank my staff. You know, I had to kind of get through it. And actually, the expectations were comforting because 
as Secretary of State for four years, you know, I traveled around the world telling people, oh, you know, democracy is hard work. You know, sometimes you win, sometimes you lose. You've got to, you know, continue to support the process. Well, here I was having lost a race that I didn't think I would lose to someone who was not qualified or temperamentally prepared to be president. But I had to go through those steps, not just for me, because I, I could put one foot in front of the other, but, you know, for the country. And it, there is a, there's a, a set of expectations, which I think help you get through those traumatic times. So they finally found a place, and we finally had a draft after arguing about what to say and what not to say. Uh, and then I, you know, went and delivered it with my husband, my daughter, my son-in-law, and with Tim Kaine and his wife, Anne. And it was excruciating. It was unbelievably painful. But again, I thought, okay, I have to set an example. I'm shattered in my head, my heart, my soul, um, but I'm not going to give in to it, and I've got to make my best efforts to encourage other people who supported me not to either, and particularly young women and girls. And that's why I said what I said in my concession speech. That was clear to you that that, that was the message that you were going to deliver? Yes. And well, after we went back and forth, I mean, there were some on my team who said, no, you need to be uh, really defiant. He's going to be a terrible president. I said, look, we think that, and we have lots of reason to think that, and we tried to warn the country. I mean, people saw him you know, bragging about sexually abusing women, and they voted for him anyway. They knew that he cheated students at his university, and he was bankrupt four times. They voted anyway. Mm -hmm. So we have to hope that he can you know, summon some character that we've not seen yet uh, in order to be the president that we should have. And so I did say in my concession speech that, you know, we should give him the, you know, the support that he deserved as our new president to do that. But I was mostly interested in addressing my supporters. I mean, the people in the room where I was speaking were sobbing. And as we drove from one hotel to the next hotel, people on the streets were sobbing. And so this was high emotion. I don't remember any day in New York like that day. Oh. I, was, I took the subway to work that morning and I mean, people openly crying on the subway. I, I actually haven't thought about that morning in a while, but yeah, it was like the whole, the whole city was mourning. Well, the city probably knew both of us better than any place in the country. And you know, I beat the heck out of him <laughs> in a, in a place where we were both known and there was no doubt in the minds of New Yorkers, look, the guy's a con artist. He's an entertaining con artist, but that's what he is. Uh, so there was a, a special sense of loss and, and just absolute shock in New York, but a lot of other places too, because that was one of my ongoing experiences over the following months. I mean, it still happens today. People come up to me and you know, ask if they can hug me, start to cry. You're definitely going to have to start consoling me at some point in this conversation. <laughs> That's guaranteed to happen. Well, we'll we'll get through it. Okay. All right. Good. As long as you can be strong. <laughs> uh, there are a couple other things about that 24 hours that I want to ask you about, and I, they're not even really questions. But when I was reading the book, sitting with you now, like I just I can't stop thinking about that. 
kind of juxtaposition of like this huge global event and then you personally and there there were two small moments that you write about in the book that just kind of broke my heart I guess and one of them was leaving the outfit that you were going to deliver the victory speech in its garment bag Mm -hmm. uh, and putting on the clothes that you were going to wear to Washington for the first time right purple get up yep and then the other was riding back here to Westchester uh, with your husband just that car ride and how quiet it was Mm. Uh, well obviously I remember both very well and I was really proud to wear white for important events one of the debates the acceptance of the nomination in Philadelphia and I was going to wear white again um, on the victory stage and I had it uh, all ready. Um, I brought other things, too, because sometimes you spill things or things get you know, unwearable. And so I did have the suit with the purple lapels that I was going to wear the first time I went to Washington as president-elect. And I wanted to send the, sim- the symbolic message, like, you know, I am going to be the president for everybody. I'm really proud and grateful to the 66 million people who voted for me, but I'm going to be the president of people who select me. I'm going to do my best for everybody. And instead, I wore it, and Bill wore a purple tie to send that message of unity and and kind of moving beyond blue and red states uh, during the concession speech. And I hugged a lot of people after it was over. A lot of people cried. George W. Bush called and held until I could talk to him. And, you know, he was very gracious and telling me he was thinking about me. And uh, then it was done. And so Bill and I went out and got in the back of the van that we drive around in. Secret Service drives it. And I just felt like all of the adrenaline was drained. I mean, there was nothing left. It was like somebody, you know, had pulled the plug on a bathtub and everything just drained out I just slumped over sat there you know every once in a while Bill would say well that was a really great speech or you know try to be uh consoling and supportive which I was greatly appreciative of and then we got home and it was just us as it has been for so many years in our little house with our dogs and you know it was a really painful exhausting time but it was also um, the beginning of my you know trying to come to grips with what happened and to be as honest as I possibly could about it Uh, I didn't do any hard thinking for the first couple of days I did more uh, walking in the woods um, but I was determined that I would recover from the loss I I know so many people who have lost so much in their lives and I'm always so impressed and admiring of their resilience and I've been lucky and blessed to have resilience too and I thought well you know I can learn from a lot of what my friends and people I admire in history have gone through but first I just have to put one foot in front of the other and you know put on some sweats and just get as much rest as I possibly can. One of the things that I was thinking about then, uh, like when I could have clear thoughts, was that 
in this weird way, like you, you have been through so much personally that maybe you were like better prepared to endure that than a lot of other people were. I think that's a fair comment. Look, I think resilience is one of the key characteristics that are required to get anybody through life because nobody goes through without setbacks, disappointments, defeats, death, divorce, whatever it might be. My mother, who was really my North Star in helping me develop my own stores of resilience, you know, would always say, it's, you know, it's not what happens to you, it's what you do with what happens to you. If you're knocked down, do you get back up? Harriet Tubman, who I quote in the very beginning of the book, I mean, do you keep going no matter what is happening? So that's my mindset. And I have been through a lot, but by no means anything close to what other people have endured and people who I both personally know and people who I admire from a distance. But I believe in summoning up your internal resources. And for me, you know, that's my faith, my, my family, my friends. And I spent a lot of time immersed in all three. Uh, I reread some, some books that were important to me, some messages that I find helpful. I had my friends rallying around. I mean, they would call me and they say, we're coming to see you whether you want to see us or not. They say, we're taking you to the theater whether you want to go or not. We're sending you books whether you want to read them or not. I mean, they just rallied to my side and my family was great and being around my grandchildren you can't help but smile they're little kids doing crazy stuff so I tried to remind myself of all the you know positive blessings that I have in my life and you know take advantage of that and by doing so slowly but surely uh, I was able to rebuild my sense of you know confidence and hope and and energy all that sounds like uh, like a form of, of grieving to me. It is a form of grieving. That's a very fair assessment. And people grieve in different ways. And some of my friends are still grieving. And some of my friends are so wrought up every single day, everything they read, every story on TV, every crazy, mean, lousy thing Trump and his people do just sets them off. And they can hardly contain themselves. And I worry about them. I mean, they really are depleting their reserves. And I want us to regroup and be part of the resistance and be part of you know, winning elections and sending messages to these people that their mean-spirited, hateful alliances with neo-Nazis and white supremacists and Ku Klux Klaners is not what America is. So I have friends who grieve very differently than I do. I'm, I'm somebody who eventually says, all right, what am I going to do and how am I going to do it? And that's how I got to deciding, oh, I'm going to write a book. I'm going to write a book and I'm going to be as candid, honest, open as I possibly can in trying to figure out what happened because I think it's not just about me and not just about one election, but what the heck is going on in our country? I wish people uh, listening could see the way that you just like sat up. <laughs> Like, here, I've been, I've been uh, asking you all these bummer questions, and all of a sudden you kind of uh, got excited. I don't, and I wonder, um, are, so are you done grieving? Well, I will always be deeply sorry I didn't win. 
I will always feel a, you know, sense of uh, uh, disappointment that I let people down, but I think I understand a lot about what happened, and I feel like, okay, now we have to throw this into the future. We have to take the lessons that I think we can learn and should learn from what happened and make sure it never happens again and protect our democracy and elect people that are going to defend our basic values against all comers, right, left, up, down, wherever they're coming from, to impose an ideology or take advantage uh, commercially or follow a, a naked partisan agenda, we're, we're, we're going to stand against that. And that energizes me and gets me, you know, very focused on what I'm going to do. How much of that process is about you and how much of it is about these tens of millions of people? Like, Here's what I've said. I've said, well, as a person, I'm okay, but I'm really worried about the country. And I, as much as possible, want to encourage people to work through their disappointment, their grief, their depression, their shock, and find a place for them to feel that they're making a contribution. It doesn't have to be in politics. It can be what you're doing. You know, you can be talking about things. It can be trying to educate people. It can be in the arts. It can be all kinds of ways that are available, particularly to young and youngish people now. Every day that goes by, I get a letter I get a message. I see somebody who just says, I'm not over it yet. I, I, I'm not over it. I can't, I can't deal with it. And I get it. But I want people to understand that we got work to do. And this guy in the White House, this president that we have now, he thrives on distraction and diversion. And they count on wearing people down and making people feel too tired out that they just can't sustain uh, the energy needed to speak up, speak out, act, do what we know needs to be done. I know their strategy, and it's a great psychological strategy because there is a difference between people who are motivated by hate and people who want to be part of a community and want to be tolerant and respectful and appreciate the diversity of background, experience, and thoughts. And the other side, man, they want to just beat you down. I know that. I mean, I have seen it. And that's one of the reasons why I'm so motivated to basically say, don't let this happen. You know, don't say, oh, you know, I, I'm too tired to go to the protest or I, I, I'm too discouraged to, you know, speak out or, oh, it doesn't matter if I vote. Wrong on all counts. And so part of my mission going forward is to say that to as many people, particularly young people, as I can possibly reach. Thanks for listening to part one of this With Her epilogue. We're back tomorrow with part two. Hillary and I talked about writing the book, what's next for her, what's next for America. With Her is produced by Jenna Weiss-Berman and our team at Pineapple Street Media. The music is from Hansdale Sue and Andrew Dost. Special thanks to Huma Abedin, Nick Merrill, Jenna Lowenstein, Katie Dowd, Daniel Cantor, and Maisie the Dog. Talk to you tomorrow.